Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. This week's event occurred in the year 1896, but what other interesting things were going on that year? Well, on January the 5th, an Austrian newspaper reports that Wilhelm Röntgent has discovered a type of radiation, later known as X-rays. Then on January the 12th, H.L. Smith takes the first X-ray photograph. And then, not long after, on January the 18th, the X-ray machine is exhibited for the first time. The 28th of January saw Walter Arnold of Kent receiving the first speeding conviction for driving in excess of the contemporary speed limit of, wait for it, two miles an hour. April the 6th saw the opening ceremonies of the 1896 Summer Olympics, the first modern Olympic Games, which are held in Athens, Greece. Great Britain and Ireland compete at the Olympics and win two gold, three silver and two bronze medals. May the 26th, 11 years after its foundation, a group of 12 purely industrial stocks are chosen to form the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The index is composed entirely of industrial shares for the first time. The 17th of August, sadly saw Bridget Driscoll becoming the first person in the world to be killed in a car accident in the grounds of the Crystal Palace in London. And lastly, on the 14th of November, the Locomotives on Highways Act of the 14th of August comes into effect, raising the speed limit of road vehicles from 4 to 14 miles an hour and removing the requirement of a man to walk in front of an automobile to give warning. To celebrate this, an emancipation run of cars from London to Brighton, continuing afterwards as the London to Brighton Veteran Car Run, is held. By this date, Thomas Humber's car factory in Coventry has become the first in Britain to begin a series production. But the event we're talking about today occurred on the 10th of August, 1896, as this newspaper report of the day describes. Further details are given to the tragic death of an actor at the Novelty Theatre, London. It appears Mr Franks, who inflicted the fatal wound on Mr Crozier, was not using the ordinary property dagger generally employed on such occasions. The weapon, the Daily News says, was the private possession of Mr Franks, who had it as a gift from the late Ada Cavendish, with whom he is connected by family ties. (laughs) 
word of the week. And this week, my friends, the word I give you is... Flabber de gaz. I repeat, flabber de gaz, which is a fluffed line or a stumbled word or a mistimed joke on stage, which is also called a major muck fluffer. This is one of the many words used as Victorian theatre slang. The incident described in the newspaper article took place after midnight on the first night in the Novelty Theatre in Great Queen Street, London, on the thoroughfare that runs from Holborn's Kingsway to Covent Garden. It was in Mr Frank Harvey's melodrama Sins of the Night, a tale of greed, murder and intrigue. At the end of the play, the character of Pablo, a Creole, kills Ramirez, a villainous Spaniard who earlier in the story had seduced and killed Pablo's sister, Abima. On the night in question, all went well in the play until the final revenge scene. Actor Wilfred Mortis Franks played the part of Pablo. He thrust the dagger at fellow actor Temple Edgecombe Crozier, who was playing Ramirez, while crying out, I have kept my oath. My sister is avenged. Die, villain, die! Tragically, the scene became a terrible reality. The dagger used by Mr. Franks, which was a real one, penetrated the breast of Crozier, inflicting what would prove to be a fatal wound. Mr. Franks, who didn't appear in the final scene of the play, released the blade after the thrust in order to let it drop to the floor as he left the stage and made his exit without realising he had, in fact, left it embedded in the chest of his friend and colleague. Charles Lilliford, another actor in the company, was the first to notice the change to Temple Crozier's pallor, and he went to help. Meanwhile, Newman Maurice, stage manager and actor, realised that something had gone terribly wrong, and as he met Franks leaving the stage, he said to him, My God, man, do you know what you've done? He later recalled that Franks made no reply. Rushing over to the stricken Crozier, who was lying on his back with the knife protruding from his chest, he heard the stricken actor whisper to Mr Lilliford, Go away! I'm all right! The actors then resumed the positions for the final scene, as the curtain began to rise again. Moments later, when the curtain lowered for the last time, they returned to Crozier's side to offer help and comfort to their friend. As Crozier was lying there, Charles Lilford, a fellow actor, withdrew the dagger from his colleague's chest and asked him again if he was all right. To which Crozier replied, Don't worry, old man. I'm all right. Even at this point, no one realised just how serious Crozier's wound was, as there was very little blood. So water and brandy was administered in an attempt to revive him. At this point, Crozier began to moan. His body went into convulsions and within a few minutes, he was dead. Medical assistance was sent for 
and Dr. James Bremer of 26 Drury Lane arrived on the scene within 10 minutes of the incident. He found Crozier lying on the stage, surrounded by his fellow actors, who were doing their best to comfort him, but he could tell that it was already too late. Although there was little external evidence of bleeding, the doctor found life to become extinct as a result of syncope caused by failure of the heart's action due to loss of blood. The police were then summoned and Detective Inspector Sarah of Bow Street Police Station arrived on the scene a short time later to investigate. Upon his arrival, Crozier's body was still laying upon the stage and when D.I. Sarah inquired as to how the death had occurred, Mr. Franks stepped forward and stated, I did it. It was an accident. It is a terrible thing. When he was shown the dagger, Mr. Franks said, Yes, it was done with that. He was the villain of the piece. D.I. Sarah then told Franks that he must arrest him on suspicion of manslaughter, and Franks was taken to Bay Street Police Station, where he was charged accordingly. Word on the street. Today, we meander to Straits Parade in BS16 Bristol. Until the 1930s, this stretch of road was known as The Straits, and many still refer to it as that today. Legend had it that George III was riding in a carriage with the Duke of Beaufort along this road, which was, at that time, a narrow road full of twists and turns. The king was so exasperated at being jolted that he bellowed to the duke, make this road straight and I'll make you a present of the land of either side of it. The duke carried out the necessary work and claimed his prize, so that the road was known as the Straits from then on. An inquest into Crozier's death was held a few days later at the St Giles Board of Works in Bloomsbury, conducted by Dr Oswald. Dr James Bremer of 26 Drury Lane, who had attended the victim on the night, gave evidence, saying that he was called to the theatre a little after midnight and was told of the accident. He found Crozier to be already dead, lying on the stage, and on examination found a puncture wound half an inch across between the second and third ribs, close to the right side of the breastbone. There was very little blood. The post-mortem examination revealed that the narrow part of the right lung was pierced, as were the pericardium and aorta. The pericardium was full of blood from the wounded artery, and it was this internal bleeding that had been the cause of death. The depth of the wound was only one and a half inches. When he was giving evidence about the weapon that had inflicted the fatal blow and which he had taken into custody, D.I. Sarah described it as a dual dagger with a sharp, narrow blade about six inches long. The handle had been wrapped in cloth and there was no spring in the blade, which was firmly fixed in the socket. Mr. Franks then identified the weapon as his own personal property something he'd been asked to supply for the production, as the manager of the piece was unsure whether the theatre could provide a suitable property weapon. 
In fact, prior to the performance, Franks had been offered such a piece but had chosen not to use it, as it was of an inferior appearance, being poorly made from tin. When asked by the coroner if he had ever used a real dagger, like the one he used on the night in question on stage, Franks replied, That was the only time I ever used it or any like it. I have, however, seen sharp weapons used. I account for the velvet being around the handle of the fatal dagger by the fact that it was put around it to hide the jewels. It was placed on by Miss St. Lawrence's dresser. Mr. Franks went on to explain that he had not felt the use of such a weapon on stage to be especially dangerous, as there was a well-rehearsed movement commonly practiced by actors, in which the weapon is turned in the hand at the last moment, causing it to land flat against the body, whilst appearing to the viewer to inflict a stab wound upon the victim. He also explained that he and Crozier had rehearsed the scene repeatedly beforehand, and had carefully measured the distance between them to achieve the best effect with safety. He felt sure that he had not moved from his own mark and that Paul Crozier must have moved towards him at the fatal moment. When asked if he knew he had stabbed Crozier, Franks replied, Then? No, I, I only thought him to be in a fit. He went on to explain that he only realised that Crozier was stabbed after the curtain had fallen. Franks also said that he and Crozier were good friends who shared a dressing room and that Crozier was planning to lodge with him while his family were away. Crozier had also borrowed the same dagger with which he was stabbed to use in his own stabbing scene, the killing of a beamer played by Miss Winifred Wood. Other members of the company also testified to the good relations between Franks and Crozier, as well as the generally poor state of Crozier's health. They even said they felt he might have stumbled onto the knife following a fainting fit from being overworked. At the end, after hearing all the evidence, the coroner, in his summing up, described the occurrence as a most melancholy tragedy and advised the jury that from all the evidence he did not think that there was anything to justify them returning a verdict of willful murder in the cause of Crozier's death. And so a verdict of death from misadventure was returned after only a very brief absence adding a rider expressing the opinion that dangerous weapons should not be used upon the stage. And in summing up, Mr Lushington, the coroner, observed that he hoped that the moral of the case would not be forgotten and that in future edged tools would not be used in such exciting scenes. The day after the incident, the management of the Novelty Theatre held a meeting with the cast to discuss how to proceed in the aftermath of the tragedy. They did consider removing the play and putting on the performance that had been held beforehand, but this was found to be impractical as the scenery and properties necessary for the former had already been taken on elsewhere. 
Consequently, it was determined that the sins of the night should be continued, but the final scene was so modified that the stabbing of the Spaniard was omitted. When the play started that evening, the manager told the audience about the dreadful accident which had occurred, in consequence of which the part of Mr. Crozier would from now on be played by Mr. Harold Child, whilst that of Mr. Franks be taken over by Mr. Robert Smith. He then begged the indulgence of the audience for the entire cast, who were still in a state of shock over the terrible incident that had occurred. The poor man who died, Temple Edgecombe Crozier, was the son of the Reverend Temple Crozier of Coston Rectory, Melton Mowbray. He was a retired army chaplain, educated at King's College, Warwick. He had then become apprentice to a well-known firm of corn merchants at Liverpool, but, finding the work not to his taste, had left that employment and drifted for some time before he found a job with travelling shows in the county of Durham. He then made his way into his chosen profession, achieving some success in the provinces, and that's where he first made the acquaintance of Mr Franks, before making his way to London in 1895. He was, as far as Miss St Lawrence, an actress who had worked with him, remembered, one of the most conscientious and promising young actors with whom she has ever been professionally associated. The night of his death was also the occasion of his West End debut, and the opening of his most prominent role to date. He died aged just 24. His body was returned to his father at Melton Mowbray to be interred next to his deceased mother in the parish churchyard. A tribute to Crozier by the Lyric Theatre of August the 15th read, Don't worry, old man, I'm all right. The last words of Temple Crozier, a fine young fellow as he passed from the bright threshold of manhood through the dark portals of eternity. No thought of himself, his danger or his pain, only his duty, his friends and the public, an actor only but dying at his post and flinching and without fear. No need for the kindly whispered warning, be brave. There was not a drop of craven blood in his poor slain body. Comrades of this true player, Comrades of mine, shall we not raise some little monument to this lost friend, a stone to match his last earthly resting place, and record as noble and as brave a speech as ever dying hero spoke? Don't worry, old man, I'm all right. A speech that was surely prophetic. Nothing can harm him now. He is all right. We will not worry, but we will love and remember. The Daily Telegraph recalls a series of accidents during stage performances. Most have occurred in connection with combats in Shakespearean plays and have been accidents pure and simple. But there have been some that occurred when the actors became so carried away. Going back to the 1700s, there is a case in which the performer lost his life on stage in front of an audience who were unaware that anything was wrong. He was a well-known tumbler in the Haymarket, and in an effort to excel himself was mortally injured. The audience were applauding with great enthusiasm, unaware that the man was dying before their eyes.
everyone, I'm Andrea. And I'm Mariah. And we're the hosts of Pretty Nice. The weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything. Like horoscopes. Why rain is the worst. Our favorite Broadway musicals. The best songs of all time. Embarrassing Facebook photos. Elevator etiquette. Breakfast revolutions. And a whole bunch of other nonsense. If you love a podcast that feels like you're kicking back with your BFFs or just hanging out and chatting with friends, Pretty Nice is for you. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, or your preferred podcatcher. We're also online at prettynicepodcast.com, on Instagram at prettynicepodcast, Twitter at prettynicepod, and Facebook at prettynicepodcast. Bye! Bye! In the news today, boffins in Bristol Labs have discovered that the sawfish has few predators in the wild, except for the very rare penfish, which is said to be mightier. Back in the day facts. And for today's show, we're going to start with the 27th of August, 1953, when the film Roman Holiday, starring Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck and Eddie Albert, was released. And then 11 years later, in 1964, Walt Disney's Mary Poppins, directed by Robert Stevenson and starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, premiered in Los Angeles. The 28th of August, 1955... 14-year-old Chicago African-American teenager Emmett Till is kidnapped, beaten and shot dead by white men in Money, Mississippi for allegedly flirting with a white woman four days earlier. His killers are eventually acquitted, but the case helps ignite the US civil rights movement. In 2017, Tim Tyson, author of the book The Blood of Emmett Till, revealed that Carolyn Bryant, recanted her testimony, admitting that Till had never touched, threatened, or harassed her. She said nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. On the 29th of August, 1533, Atta Walper, the 13th and last emperor of the Incas, dies by strangulation at the hands of Francisco Pizarro's Spanish conquistadors. The execution of Atta Walper the last free reigning emperor, marked the end of 300 years of Inca civilization. On the 30th of August, 1879, the first service was held at St. Werburgh's Church after it was rebuilt stone by stone. And on the 31st of August, 1888, the mutilated body of Mary Ann Nichols was discovered in the Whitechapel district of London's East End, and many people believe she was the first victim of Jack the Ripper. And lastly, on the 31st of August, 1891, 10 miners were killed in an explosion at the Malago coal pit in Bristol. Well, that's it, I'm afraid. A signal's the end of another fantastic show. Thank you for joining me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Now, the people who really make the show 
must get a special mention. And this show, we had Steve Shepard from Bradley Stoke Radio, Joe Wilson, Molly Jeffries, Steve Roberts and Becky Vicker from St. Stephen's Drama Group right here in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>